These readings are what we would term in biblical scholarship apocalyptic readings, the first reading in the gospel. Apocalypsis means an unveiling. It means a revealing of what is hidden. But that word today often means prophecies of the future or prophecies of the end of the world, some sort of destruction. Well, they prompt a reflection on what are traditionally called the four last things. And for centuries, reflection on the four last things has been a cornerstone of Christian spirituality, to the point that at some point in the church, the four Sundays of Advent were often dedicated to the four last things, those things being death, judgment, hell, and heaven. But we have become so fearful of even the ideas of death, judgment, and hell that we've stopped reflecting on these things to our great detriment. Nevertheless, the proximity of Advent and the strength of these readings means that we should probably talk about them today. Before we can really understand death, judgment, heaven, and hell, we first have to notice a strange characteristic of our gospel reading today. The 13th chapter of St. Mark is entirely devoted to apocalyptic sayings by Jesus. And that's strange enough. But even within that chapter, the Lord starts by speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, and then he jumps into prophecies of the end of the world and the second coming. Those two seem to be related in his mind somehow. Even though one happened shortly after the Gospel of Mark was written in 70 AD, and then the other has yet to happen two millennia later. Even our short passage seems to begin with references to the end of the world, quote, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, just to jump back to references to the end of Jerusalem. Quote, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. This strange interplay between the specific and immediate and the universal is exactly the dynamic present in the four last things. In a sense, there are two deaths, two judgments, two heavens, and two hells. The first death is our own individual death. In case it's a surprise to you, every single one of us is going to die. However, Christ, through his resurrection, removed the power of death. So Christianity has always preached that we should not cower or flee from this inevitability. Through the power of Christ, we have nothing to fear. And we Christians ought to be able to look death in the face with confidence. It is good, it is spiritually good for us to reflect on the inevitability of our own deaths and to prepare ourselves for them. 
This is not a morbid disposition that somehow opposes the joy of living. It is an honest disposition that allows us to invite Jesus to purify us of all of our fears, to allow him to be part of even the image of our own death. We should also offer prayer to St. Joseph, ask for his intercession, because he is the patron of a happy death. And Christians for centuries have prayed to him that, through his intercession, they would be given time to get their affairs in order and visit with their loved ones one last time. The second death is the death of the world. When Jesus comes a second time, all of creation will be destroyed. As our gospel says, heaven and earth will pass away. Reflection on the end of the world is again to our spiritual benefit because it reminds us that this world of ours is heading for destruction and encourages us not to get too attached to the things of this world which will eventually pass away into nothingness. After death, we are confronted with judgment. The scriptures are very clear that we will be judged by Jesus Christ himself. When we close our eyes in death and open them again, we will be face to face with Jesus. Naked, not just physically, but emotionally, everything will be revealed. There will be nowhere to hide. For some of us, this will be an incredibly joyful experience because we have lived our lives seeking the Lord, coming to know the Lord, growing in love for the Lord. To be face-to-face with him without any barriers will be the fulfillment of every desire of our hearts. But if we have spent our lives ignoring the Lord, running from the Lord, or denying the Lord, I can think of no experience more uncomfortable or painful. Even though we use the word judgment for this experience, I am of the belief that it will not involve the Lord running down a checklist of all the requirements to get into heaven. Instead, standing with nothing hidden before the Lord will be the experience of having the depth of our being revealed in perfect truth. Oftentimes, we do not even understand our own motivations or beliefs. But in the perfect and perfectly penetrating light of Christ, we will understand ourselves and our lives completely. In a sense, neither we or the Lord are exercising judgment, as is commonly understood. We will just know, as a firm and unassailable truth, whether we have formed our souls to desire him or to reject him. The second judgment, which is traditionally called the general judgment, is like the individual judgment, except that every human being, from Adam and Eve until the end of the world, will be present. Because everything is revealed in the penetrating light of God, we will all know perfectly the state of each other's souls, something which is impossible on this earth. Nothing will be hidden. 
This is what our reading from Daniel means when it says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some shall live forever. Others shall be an everlasting horror and disgrace. But the wise shall shine brightly like the splendor of the firmament. And those who lead the many to justice shall be like the stars forever. It is also at the general judgment that the resurrection of the body occurs. Our souls and our bodies were created together. They are two parts of the same entity, and it is unnatural that they should exist apart from each other for any length of time. Death is unnatural for exactly this reason. But at the end of time, our bodies will be restored to us perfectly, and we will live eternity with body and soul united. Finally, we have the last of the four last things, heaven and hell. The best theological explanation I have seen for these two, in light of the fact that God is love, is that heaven and hell are the same place with different dispositions. Everyone will live for all eternity in the perfectly penetrating light of Christ. All of us will be given that same light, the light of perfect love. Again, for some of us, this will be the most joyful thing we can imagine, and for others of us, the most painful thing. It has everything to do with how we have shaped our dispositions here on earth. Remember, God exists outside of time. So when we are united to him, we are united to eternity. Whoever we were on earth gets multiplied by infinity. If we choose Jesus on earth, we will choose him infinitely and perfectly in eternity. If we rejected Jesus on earth, there is every reason to believe that we will reject him infinitely and perfectly in eternity after death, too. There are no gray areas when you multiply by infinity, where either completely one thing or completely the other. Of course, like I said at the beginning, there is a weird dichotomy between the immediate and specific and the universal. And heaven and hell exist in that weird dichotomy, too. In a sense, there are two heavens and two hells. The first is what we might call temporary heaven and temporary hell. These are the states of being for souls after their death, but before the second coming. These souls exist in the perfect light of God, so they are already experiencing what we would call heaven or hell. But they are not yet reunited with their bodies, and they remain in communion with those of us still on earth, those of us still existing in time. Because time has not yet gone away, there also exists, alongside these two states of being, something that we call purgatory. Because time still exists, change is still possible in souls. Change requires time. And it's possible in a way that is impossible once time is destroyed and we enter into eternity. 
Some souls, when they are confronted with the infinite and perfect light of Christ, that perfectly loving light, some souls are disposed toward that light, and they seek that light, but are not yet able to stand in that light without some pain. They're not perfectly open yet to the love of God. The light of Christ is purifying these souls of their sins and their sinful dispositions, so that once eternity dawns, these souls can receive the light and love of Christ perfectly forever. We pray for these souls that their purification would be quick. But then, of course, there is the second heaven and hell, the permanent and eternal heaven and hell, which come about after the second coming. While the temporary versions of heaven and hell may look something like harps and halos and clouds, we don't know what it looks like for a soul to exist apart from a body because it's not supposed to happen, heaven, harps and halos and clouds are nothing like how we will spend eternity. When Christ comes again, he will destroy all of creation and recreate it perfectly, just as he recreated our souls on the day of our baptism. As the second letter of St. Peter says, According to his promise, we await new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Heaven and hell are this earth and this universe recreated in perfection. It is all of the joys of this life with none of the pains. It is creation perfectly infused with the light and love of Christ. Depending on the disposition of our souls that we formed during our lives on earth, living in this new creation will either be hellacious or heavenly. To summarize, everyone experiences death, everyone stands in the perfectly illuminating light of Christ, and everyone receives the resurrection of the body in which to live eternally in the love of God. It's true for everyone, no matter how they live their life, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. How we experience each of these things, however, is up to us. If we form ourselves to love Jesus, we will experience an eternity with him as overwhelming joy. If we reject Jesus, he will respect our choice. He doesn't overturn our free will. And we will be filled with eternal resentment toward him. Now, like I mentioned, Advent is just around the corner. And even though I had to talk about these things today because they were prompted by the readings, Advent is the traditional time to reflect on the four last things. It is a good and holy use of Advent to do so, to think about, to pray about, to dwell on death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Such reflections put our lives in proper perspective, They broaden our horizons to eternity rather than just the next day or the next week. And they allow us to welcome, embrace, and celebrate the possibility of an eternity spent with Jesus after our death and after the second coming.